welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. There's a story in the book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, which the title alone, you should buy the book, um, by Tony Campoli. He, he, he opens up the story. Uh, I'm sorry, he opens up the book with a story when he was traveling from the East Coast to Honolulu to teach. Obviously jet-lagged from the, the nine-hour time difference. He woke up at 3.30 in the morning and wandered around Honolulu looking for a place to eat, found a diner that he calls Greasy, and uh, there was no one really in the diner except the, the large man behind the counter, one of the owners, and orders a donut and a, and a coffee. And um, right as he's getting his donut and coffee, eight or nine prostitutes come into the, the, the diner. And he describes it as crude. They just, they, the things they're talking about, it's vulgar, vulgar, it's crude. He's kind of off-put. He's trying to get out of there as soon as he can. But the, the person next to him, he over here says, tomorrow's my birthday. And um, the friend or the other prostitute sitting there says, well, what do you want me to do about it? She's like, nothing. I'll be 39. She's like, what, you want me to throw you a party? And, and the woman said, no, no, I was just saying, I, I've never had a party. Why well, would I expect you to throw me a party? A few minutes go by and they all leave. And Tony asks the man behind the counter, do they come here often? And he says, yeah, they're here every night around the same time. He's like, what, what do you think about throwing a party for her? And, and the, the owner shouts to the back to his wife who's cooking in the kitchen, says, hey, this man wants to throw a party. He's like, hey, I'll get all the decorations and I'll get a cake. And the, the man at the diner says, no, 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 I'm going to make the cake. He's like, okay, let's same time. I'll, I'll get here early next week same time, and, and uh, you get the word out to all of her friends. So uh, the next day, he shows up at 2.30, and, and he describes in his book as if the word got out because every prostitute in Honolulu showed up to the diner. <laughs> they put up the, the sign, Happy Birthday, Agnes, and they all waited in anticipation. Finally, Agnes comes in. They yell, Surprise, Happy Birthday. They sing Happy Birthday, and it says she's stunned and shocked. She is barely able to make it to the counter as she walks in in disbelief. And then they bring out the cake with the candles, and they wish her, and they sing Happy Birthday. And they're like, You got to blow out the candles. And she's shocked. Her eyes are wide looking at this candle and the cake. Come on, Agnes, you got to blow out the candle. I'm going to blow them out. She blows them out. And then they're like, quick, we want a piece of cake. And she's like, hold on, hold on. And he describes it in the book. She says, can I just, can I just have it for a little longer? And the owner says, Agnes, it's your cake. You can do whatever you want with it. She, she looks up, I can. Can I take it home? I'll, I'll be back in just a few minutes. I live just around the corner. Can I take it home and, and I'll come back? And she, so she, she, she carries the cake out of the diner with her friends and all the prostitutes in Honolulu packed. And she walks out the door carrying what he describes as the Holy Grail. Without thinking, the MC, who's Tony, says, hey, why don't we say a prayer and begins to say a prayer over Agnes as she's gone and all the prostitutes and the owner pray. And when he finishes, he writes this. When I finished, Harry, the owner, leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice. And he said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment, and then he almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. 
If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. I want to talk about unreasonable hospitality today. We're in a series called Remember. And I'm trying to do my best as a local church pastor to give you things to carry into this new season we're stepping into. We talked about first love. We talked about wild obedience to the voice of God. We talked about discipleship. And today I want to talk about something I'm so passionate about. It's so ingrained in the New Testament. It's about hospitality. I love what um, Henry Nouwen says. He says, hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It is not to bring men or, and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. That's a unique definition. We're going to answer the question today, why was hospitality such an important practice in the New Testament? And what did table fellowship mean or represent to Jesus? And how do we practice that today? Does that sound okay? Hospitality, if you open up the scriptures in the New Testament, is a really big deal. In fact, it's one of the qualifications you have to have in order to be an elder in church. If you wanted to be a leader in the church, you have to be someone who practices hospitality. People have to see this in your life. You're somebody who lives a hospitable lifestyle. It's not only a qualification, but it's a requirement for leadership. I love what 1 Peter says in um, chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that amazing? Love each other deeply. Love covers a multitude of sins. And then it goes on, and it shows you how love covers sins. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So the very next line, he gives us uh, an invitation. Offer each other hospitality without grumbling. That alone is a, a moment you can take that verse and walk out of here. Is that enough? I always host. There's the grumbling. They never invite me back. The command for all Christians is to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. All right, let's keep going. You guys are like, what what am I getting? Uh, Romans 12, it says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. That word practice is not the same word that we talked about a couple, uh, last week um, in, in Matthew. It's actually a different word. And it's, it means when translated from the Greek to do something with intense effort and with definite or def, uh, definite purpose or goal. To do something with intense effort. Do, do hospitality with intense effort. Now, these are commands in the New Testament. So these are things when you say, hey, I I believe in the word of God. I want to live under the authority of scripture as a follower of Jesus. This is a command. This isn't a choice. And this isn't a choice based on what you have to show hospitality. I'm going to make a point. You don't need a house to be hospitable. You You could have lots of roommates. You could have no table and still be the most hospitable person in the room. You don't need gifts from the Holy Spirit to be hospitable. It helps. We'll ask the Lord today to release gifts of hospitality. It is a gift God gives. 
Some of you have it and you use it. And it's amazing what happens when someone with the gift of hospitality opens their home because their home becomes the epicenter of the kingdom activity. I'm getting ahead of myself. But you don't need the gifts. You need to obey. I'm just filling you guys out. You're a lot quieter today. How are we doing? Are we all right? I lost you a Super Bowl or what? Are you still wondering how uh, Amanda will ever get it right? 24-hour prayer? <laughs> I love you, man. It was great. It was great. <laughs> let's anchor it. Okay, let's anchor it in one story. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 19. Would you go grab a Bible? Go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. This is by far the most controversial story in the entire New Testament. I want you to crawl out of your skin when we read this. You ready? Here we go. Verse one, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. That means he wasn't staying. Real quick, connotation is this. When someone, a religious leader or a person of influence comes to a town, the town would wait to host. They would meet him before they got in. That's probably what happened. They would want to host him, put him up. They would want him to teach in the synagogue. That's not what happens. Jesus is just going right past him until... A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be a guest of a sinner. Now, quick, quick little like historical fact or more contextual fact. You weren't allowed to have sycamore trees inside the city gates or walls. They were designed for the outside. Specifically, they were used to shade when you were marked as unclean and you had to step outside of the community for a while. So the fact that he's in the tree that's used for uncleanliness is a symbol. It's so symbolic that Jesus plucks the fruit right off the, the sinner tree. And it's on his way out, so he didn't stay, but now he's going back to stay at Zacchaeus's house. He's a tax collector. He's been conspiring with the Romans. He is excommunicated from the temple fellowship. He's not considered a Jew. He's not considered a son of Abraham. He is now, dis, uh, he, is, he doesn't have communion. His family would have grieved his death because they would see him as dead. Season three, episode one, The Chosen, just saying, you gotta watch it. <laughs> oh, so good. Um, he made a living by oppressing people and taxing them. He would have been considered as defiled. To be touched by a tax collector was to be um, seen, marked as unclean. I mean, this is as bad as it gets. This is Jesus going to a tax collector's house, not just a tax collector, the guy that's in charge of all the other tax collectors. This is Jesus getting on a private jet with Epstein. Oh, I told you you're going to crawl out of your skin. I want you, to, I want you to feel it. I want you to think about what the pastor just said on stage. That's exactly what's going on in this story. We can't over-spiritualize this with a Sunday song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. That's... <laughs> and to be honest, this is fact, the Greek doesn't make it clear if Jesus is short or Zacchaeus. 
Yeah, I just messed up that song for you. There you go. He couldn't see over the crowd because Jesus was short. That might be how it's read, just so you know. So there he is, stepping in to someone's home. In every culture, meals are what the anthropologist Mary Douglas called boundary markers. They bring people together, but they also keep people apart. And even today, the general rule is we eat with people that are our colleagues, our friends, our families. They're similar to us. This is true in all societies, but especially true in the first century when Jesus was living his life and teaching. So the backstory is before Jesus is this. When Israel was dragged off into exile 400 years before this event, before Jesus gets to the scene, um, the temple was destroyed. The sacrificial system was, was put to an end. The priesthood was imprisoned. And, um, and so the question was, how do you live out the, the Torah with no temple, with no sacrifice, with no priest? So they had to reinvent a way to worship God in exile. So they did. And here's what happened. The home became the new temple. The table became the new altar. The father became the priest. And the meal is the new sacrifice. This is how you keep covenant. So every home was an altar. Every home was a temple. Every home had a priest and every home had a, a, a new sacrifice, every meal. And that's a cool idea. I love it. I want to take it and run with it unless you're a Pharisee. Pharisees come along and say, yes, this is great. Except they believe that sin uh, and not following the Torah got, got them into the mess. So the way out of the mess, the way to usher in the kingdom of God was to live the Torah perfectly. 613 commands in the Old Testament and 1,500 oral traditions on top of that, 2,000 plus laws you had to embody. And if they said if just every single Jewish person in Israel lived the Torah for one day alone, the kingdom would come. So what does that mean? Well, if you read the Old Testament, it means no Gentiles in your home. It means no, no, uh, no conversations with sinners, especially tax collectors, especially prostitutes, especially the defiled. And this is why Jesus gets into so much trouble. You, you think cancel culture is bad today. Think about what that meant back then. We didn't invent cancel culture. It's been around for a very long time. And Jesus is about to be canceled. And it's because of what he's doing. Check out what one German theologian writes. He says, in the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they uh, that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. What does this mean? For Jesus, meals were a sign of God's kingdom advancing. Hospitality wasn't a way of keeping people out. It was a scandalous act of inviting people in. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either coming from a meal, at a meal, or going to a meal. It's so significant. In fact, what I would like to argue, according to the Gospel of Luke, is that there are three primary ways that Jesus demonstrates the kingdom of God. He proclaims it, yes, but there are three ways Jesus demonstrates the kingdom of God. Number one is through healing. 
Number two is through deliverance. And in the gospel of Luke, the third way he reveals the demonstration of the kingdom of God is through hospitality. Hospitality has the power to demonstrate the kingdom of God. Now, can you just pause for a moment and think if what I'm saying is true and we're all called to be like Jesus, to become like Jesus, to be with him, to become like him and do what he did, then we're all called, we've talked about it here, to heal the sick. How you doing? How many sick people did you pray for this week? How many people did you deliver from evil spirits this week? Any, anyone want to show their hands? Look, I, I get it. I'm being tongue-in-cheek. I'm being a little cheeky for a moment. You're like, damn, I mean, that's hard. Yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. We might not have faith to cast out demons right now. We're going to change that over the year, okay? We want, we want to see your faith increase. But how many of you have faith to turn a table into a place where the kingdom of God can manifest? Right? I mean, it gets real practical. We all eat mostly three meals a day unless you're doing intermittent fasting, unless you're on a fast, or if you're like me, you're eating way more than three meals a day. Right? 21 meals, is that right? Somebody do the math. Anyone want to do? Yes, 21 meals. You have 21 meals a week. What would happen if one of those 21 meals became the epicenter for God's activity? This is what we're getting after. This is what's going on. Hospitality has the power to demonstrate the kingdom of God. Jesus lived in a culture where a lot of people were hostile towards him. So how did he walk them into the kingdom? One meal at a time. Luke, check, check this out. Luke chapter 19, verse 8. So they, they go, he goes to his house, he's having a meal, and then this is what happens. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, the Lord, said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. I love this story. A couple chapters earlier, a rich man comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? He's like, uh, give everything away and then you will have it. Now this chief sinner is like, I'm going to give half. And the rich guy's like, wait, that's only half. He's all upset. But here's the point. The, the, the rich young ruler called Jesus teacher. Zacchaeus calls him Lord. Something happens at this meal, right? Something happens. He's in his own house right? There's no stage lights or the, the song doesn't come out. They're eating bread, ordinary food that he provided for. And in this moment, there's this spontaneous reaction, this thing that takes off. Zacchaeus gets up. What's happening? He's got his, you know, Jesus has his cronies there, his, his disciples, right? They're all hanging out and he's in this house and he's, he's looking, he's probably feeding all these people, he's serving them. Then he just gets up and then he starts rearranging his life around Jesus. He's like, this sofa has to go. This toaster has to go. This extra TV, it's got to go. I got this house in Big Bear, that has to go. Why? Because of Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't like, all right, guys, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to show up at your house next week. We're going to go to Starbucks and we're going to confess our sin. No, he just gets up and has this reaction where his life is now rearranged around the lordship of Jesus. That's the power of hospitality. And I will say in all of the scripture, there's one place where we know for a fact salvation has occurred. Jesus sees this reaction and he says, today, salvation has come to your house. 
Because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. Oh, how offensive is Jesus? He's included. This guy gets in. He gets forgiven salvations in his house. He's also, he reaffirms his identity. You're welcome back at the table. You're included in the fellowship of Israel as the son of Abraham. Do you see how offensive this is? If you were on the outside, you would have been like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Everything you've been taught by the religious leaders, everything you've been told, everything that's inside of you is like, this is not fair. This is injustice happening right in front of me. Yeah, I'll take the extra toast, so that's cool. But this is still bad. Jesus is in on the corruption. Jesus is in on the evil that's in this home. And he's in now, this would have been so offensive. This would have been so upside down. Then Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Verse 10, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now, if you were paying attention and we were going through the Gospel of Luke, you would have a few chapters earlier recognized that this phrase, the Son of Man, uh, is, is um, familiar. It was, it was a, a phrase that was used, why the Son of Man? Jesus uses it twice, and it's a tool he will use to make a point. In Luke chapter 19, it says, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And it's a repeated line from the Gospel in chapter 7, verse 33. And it says this, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. And then Jesus says in verse 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. One scholar makes this brilliant point. He says this. This is a verbal formula. The Son of Man came happens twice. Once is about Jesus' mission. The other is about Jesus' method. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is what Jesus came to do, and that's his mission. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's how Jesus came to do it, his method. So hospitality, table fellowship, is both Jesus' mission and his method. Does that make sense? And so one, one scholar says the entire ministry of Jesus is appropriately captured in this phrase, divine hospitality to the stranger and sinner. Whatever happens next for our church requires you to live a hospitable lifestyle. But not just like hospitality, I'm gonna open up my friends and do dinner parties, like unreasonable hospitality. This is a phrase uh, uh, that I, I'm, I'm taking from a book by a Michelin star uh, restaurant owner, Will Gadero, Gadera. It's an amazing book. And it really is helpful for all Christians to understand what we're after when it comes to hospitality. Uh, he tells a story from another uh, chef he learned this idea of enlightened hospitality where there was a couple celebrating an anniversary in the restaurant and they realized they left their champagne in the freezer at home. They asked the server, would that explode You know, as we enjoy our meal? And the, the server says, yeah, it will absolutely explode and be ruined. And they're like, okay. The server gets the keys in the apartment, drives to their house, takes the champagne out of the freezer to let it chill, brings caviar and chocolate, 
and came back so that they could enjoy the meal. Imagine going to that kind of restaurant. What do you feel? Unreasonable. Doesn't make sense. In this, in this book, it talks about this mindset that you can have. I love the definition of the Greek word hospitality. It means the love of the stranger, love of the outsider, love uh, to welcome all as a guest. Rosario, Rosaria Butterfield writes this, radical ordinary hospitality, those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. It is awesome. That's appropriate response for that phrase, for that quote. Um, in his book, Unreasonable Hospitality, he says, service is black and white. Hospitality is color. Black and white means you're doing your job with competence and efficiency. Color means you make people feel great about the job you're doing for them. Getting the right plate to the right person at the right table is service. But genuinely engaging with the person you're serving so you can make an authentic connection, that's hospitality. And Maya Angela says, people forget what you do. They'll forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. You all, you might, you, you might never remember a sermon that's been spoken, but you'll remember how somebody made you feel when they welcomed you into your house. Or when you invited them, if you don't even have us, you invited them to coffee and made a table for people to encounter the presence of God through your genuine interest in them as a person. This is what I realized. Hospitality doesn't need much, but it needs a person who's willing to engage in creating the space, holding space for another person. Not trying to win them over, trying to love them. Why? Because they are loved by God. And you are that funnel of God's love into that place in person. And then maybe there might be a chance where the divine encounter happens and maybe they get up from the table and they're like, I'm going to give my Tesla away. And you're like, all right, let's go. <laughs> the thing about Zacchaeus' story that I love is it's a model for all of us, Right? that uh, when we come to Jesus and when we really see him as Lord, not as like Jesus, the cultural commentator, Jesus, the politically left or right version we've made in our image, Jesus, the cool teacher who's got self-help to make me happy. You know, not that Jesus that's an accessory to your life, but Jesus is Lord. What you, when you see him as Lord, you get a new identity. There's no other way around it. It's like when you have kids. You get a new identity, right? Because like everything in your life, when you go from not having kids to having kids, everything changes. And not all of us have kids in here. I understand that, but I'm just gonna give you a little insight, okay, real quick. Because nobody can prepare you. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books. I went to the classes with Alex. You know, I went to the breastfeeding class. I went, we had a doula coaching us on the breathing style she was going to do. I, I mean, everything that you can do, I was prepping, I was processing my past pain of child, you know, being a kid, but raised by, you know, cool parents who loved me, but I just still felt pain or whatever. Like, I was doing all the work. You're like, wait, what are you talking about? Don't, don't worry about it. Just keep going. Sorry. 
We all, we all have pain. We're all bringing, we all have history of years of pain. We're going to project onto our kids. This, this is all, you're welcome for that. But I wasn't prepared. I was not prepared for the change that would happen, right? And I tell people who are about to have a kid, like Faith is up here, like about to pop. And she's still, she's leading worship only for a few more weeks. Is this your last week? Oh, we love you so much. And we're celebrating that. And I'm grieving it as well. Um, but this is for you, Faith. Everything's going to change. Like right now, you know, Faith, you know, let me talk to you real quick. You know, there's like a room now. You moved houses. There's a room. There's all this gear with a language you've never spoken before. Burpee, boppy, bumbo, like docatot. You're literally like, that's good. And then eventually you're going to be, you're going to, this is what's crazy. I know this sounds crazy. Eventually there will be a time when you're, you're like writing down the hours they slept, right? You're like keeping track of poops. Sometimes that happens. I kid you not. And you're like, there's like a phrase. You're like, what color? Like you need to know these things. That's the real gross part of being a parent. You get like a nose Frida and you don't think twice sucking the snot out of their mouth. All to say things change, right? You don't get to say, oh, there's a baby crying in the room next door. That's your baby. You get up and you go. And mostly in the early days, it was all Alex. And God bless you for, for that. I was really involved. Was I really involved? I was very involved as much as I could be. But life changes. And this is all playful. But what happens when we come to Jesus is life doesn't change. We don't speak a different language. We don't allow for him to be Lord of my home, my finances, my, my speech, my business dealings, the way I, I slow down to include others in the process. He doesn't change my temper. We just add him to a weekly rhythm, maybe, maybe a portion of our finances, but he doesn't reconstruct our finances. He doesn't, he, we, we will give him, all right, Lord, what do you want to do with this 10% if we do 10%? He wants in on all of it. Yeah. That's next week, so maybe you don't want to come next week. <laughs> I'm going to drop extravagant generosity and see what happens to all of you. No, I'm just kidding. This is the point. Jesus, when he's Lord, he gives us a complete overhaul. Right? It's not like a little add-on. You know, it's not, it's not the HGTV channel giving you a new room and a better kitchen. It's a whole, it's tearing it down to the studs and rebuilding a foundation. For some of us, it's a completely new foundation. And we think, oh man, you know, I have that. But most of us haven't even given space to Jesus this week. We read the scriptures and we, we try to find out, we try to find these nuggets to bless my day. But we read over, practice hospitality. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm going to do like, you know, charcuterie board and have some friends over and eat some cheese and drink some wine. I get it. No, 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 no. As a lifestyle, include the outsider, the person nobody wants over. Bring them in because that's the person God's inviting you into. What will happen if we become a movement? It will happen because you say, yes. To Jesus is Lord. And then you say, okay, all right, Lord, today, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do what you say. 
I'm going to take once, once a week, one of 21 meals. I'm going to make a, a divine encounter. We're going to set it up with all I got. You know what? I have $5. I'm going to get cheese Whiz and some crackers and pray that the Lord multiplies. And if you're my kids, they would love that cheese in a can. They, don't, they saw it on the Goofy movie and they're obsessed with it. <laughs> they're asking for it for Christmas. I kid you not. I'm like, Santa doesn't make that. Okay, here we go. Let's keep going. GMOs and seed oils. We'll get rid of all that stuff along with EMFs. So, Jesus uses an ordinary thing like a meal and makes it a way of revealing the heart of God to the world. So the question is, uh, what do we do? And I don't want to step on anyone's toes except say this, that I feel like for most of us, we've never had, uh, we've never been able to identify in our culture and context, what hospitality is, because most of us live in a culture of entertainment, right? So we struggle with this idea because we think we have to practice entertainment, which is not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about hospitality. Entertainment is about exclusion. There's a guest list, there's an invite, and an in-crowd. So hospitality is about in, uh, is, is not about uh, that list. Hospitality is about full inclusion. It's about an open table. It's about everyone's welcome. Entertainment is about performance. You show off your skills as a chef. Some of us have very little. You bring your circle of friends, your influencers who are going to post pictures about it or whatever. That's pretty extreme, but so, you know what I mean. You, you, you show off your skills, your house, the environment is dialed. You know, you, you were freaking out cleaning making sure that nobody live, looks like they live there when you invite people over. Anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> what are we doing with all these toys? Mommy, we play with them. Oh my God. Daddy, it's daddy. It's not mommy. <laughs> it's my bedroom. I know. Don't, don't leave all your toys out. Whatever it is. <laughs> I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to stop. I just know that I could just get off. Hospitality is about sharing the experience. It's not about performance. It's, it's not about having your own home together or in order for that matter. It's not about having it spotless. Hospitality will blur the lines of everyone gets to participate. It means they're helping in the preparation. There's a meal happening and there's conversations over here and there's preparation and everyone has a role in all of it. They're cleaning up. They're, they're, yeah, I love what uh, Rosaria Butterfield says. She says, uh, when, the hospitality in her home is people come over and there's a pile of laundry. This is my love language. There's a pile of laundry on the table and, and her friends come in and they help fold the laundry because that's what it means to be hospitable. There's a place, there's a part, there's an invitation to that sacred space where you want people to see in your home a projection of an image, but hospitality gets rid of that image and it says, come and feast participate in the ordinary part of my life. They're helping with cleanup. It's all happening together. Hospitality is about paying attention to each other, holding space for the difference. It's not about convincing people or arguing. It's about an invitation to learning. Entertainment is sporadic, scheduled weeks out in advance. Hospitality is regular, rhythmic, and it's part of your life. What's preventing you from practicing hospitality? Too busy. It's not a priority. You don't feel like you have a big enough space. 
maybe you think you have to perform or make it perfect. I think there's like a, a curse of perfection on many of us that we have to have it dialed. We feel like they're going to judge us if the meat's not perfectly cooked. Maybe that's a man thing. You know, if someone's judging your, your grill, is it a Traeger? I don't know. I don't know what this is. <laughs> How long did you season it? I don't know. I'm sorry. I, don't, I didn't read the, watch the YouTubes on cooking steak. God bless all of you that do and invite me over. I'm for it. More Lord. You know, hospitality has the power to transform. I have, I've had multiple experiences when I shared this story in the past, but when my wife first had a heart condition, we were living in Newport Beach. When we were commuting here once a month for gatherings, some, some of our friends came over, and it was a season of our life where we didn't know what she had, what diagnosis she had. It was just scary. We were in the hospital every week. Um, her heart would shoot up to 220 beats per minute and wouldn't stop without a drug called adenosine. Um, and so she had it on, on a regular basis. It was scary. She was so young. We were young. We were terrified. And our friends said, hey, we're going to come over. I'm like, oh, we want to be alone. Said, They're like, no, 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 we're going to come over. I think they brought us like, like soup and coloring books. And they sat on the floor and we colored. They brought markers and coloring books. And we sat there not talking about the elephant in the room, her health just laughing and strangely being calmed by coloring. Hospitality in our home. Someone else brought the hospitable gift and welcomed themselves to sit in the pain of uncertainty. It's the gift of hospitality. During COVID, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was like a real politically divided season. (laughs) In the church, especially... In the church in Southern California, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know what I'm talking about. I was the, I was the person everyone got mad at. This is true. You're, you're not gathering. Ah, oh, Gavin Newsom. Oh, a year, 14 months later, you're gathering. Oh, you're, you're crazy conservative. What are you talking about? It was insane. I lost so many friends because they just projected their political stance on me. I'm sorry I've never led in a pandemic. I would do it differently now that I've gone through a global pandemic. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm serious. It was heartbreaking. It was painful. I did memorial services. There was suicide in our church. It was left and right. People were heated. I got off social media because it was like, I'm like, God's good today. And it was like, ah, no, he's not yet. Oh, that's not a good enough thing. It was just absolutely insane. You could not say anything without everyone coming to tar and feather you. Anyone want to just say yes and take a deep sigh? We were crazy to each other. We demonized people. What's crazy is like the crazies were right about a lot of stuff coming out. I'm saying it. It's true. There were things people got kicked off of Twitter and all these things for. And now it's a fact, which is hard to say because what is fact? But it's, it's a reality that's taking place. Or it's true, it's back and forth. We're going, and it's like we demonized each other. We saw a mask as a symbol of your politics, and it still is. And we're hating each other for it. We just want to be, we want to find a space where we can just be ourselves without all those other people. That is not Jesus' church. In the beginning, he had a zealot who wore a knife to kill people, especially tax collectors and Romans, 
And he had a tax collector in his inner circle. <laughs> Season three, episode three. I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is our heritage. And you think you're going to find a community that aligns with your politics, that the pastor's going to preach, oh, just preach it like have him come. It's like, come on, guys. Be resilient. Be strong. Obey the commands of the scripture. How you say something is as important as what you say. Just speak truth. During that time, there was a, a couple in our church who at the time was very different than my wife and I. They, they had a political view that was challenging things that I was saying. And they didn't, they didn't want to participate in our community more because of the mandates and the masks. And they're like, ah, oh, this is really hard. And I said, well, and they, they, they suggested we get together. And it was at a time when we couldn't. So we sat outside, distance from each other. No, you know, put masks on 18 feet away. We had microphones to talk to each other. <laughs> I was afraid that some neighbor's going to call on me. This is all true. They brought communion. And I remember them saying, this is what we believe. And we did it multiple times in our backyard. And I tell you what, that encounter, that experience gave me so much hope. Not only did they choose to do things that, and accommodate their views for the sake of the gospel, but that space that was held by them for me gave me space to discover things that I didn't know. It was one of the most remarkable stories for me of somebody who was dear friends with differing opinions at the time coming together and being unified around the things that matter most, humbling themselves to say, I'm still in this community despite what I believe. I'm going to lay it down for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. I mean, that is the power of hospitality. If we ever, for instance, have political division in the next season, maybe every four years, Can I just subtly just throw this in as we step across the orange curtain to gather on Sunday, which for many of you is very hard. I get it. It's like, I, that is the biggest psychological barrier to staying at the garden. I'm just naming it. I know. It is for me. I have Long Beach tattooed on my heart and my arm. <laughs> orange County is my Nineveh. No, Lord. I'm gonna hop on a boat and head out. I'll take the whale for the love. I'll do anything. But for whatever reason, this is the word of the Lord for our community. What will help you along the way? Hospitality. Real biblical hospitality. Where the, the person that represents the opposite of you is welcomed into your home. If you do that, if we do that, it's unstoppable force. We're an unstoppable force. And maybe that's just what Orange County needs. Maybe that's what LA County needs. Heck, maybe California. You know what? I think the United States needs it for sure. Can we pray? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.